Hey, this is Kathleen. And when I'm not unfucking businesses here on the podcast, I'm unfucking real estate over at ysaintpete.com. My company is Sighty Realty, and we are excited to sponsor this episode. Hey everyone, this is Heather Parbst, and I just snuck back in from season two, episode two, to welcome you to Unfuck My Business. No bullshit advice for business owners who want to be resilient as fuck. So go ahead and buckle up, my friends. It's going to be an awesome ride. Now, here are your hosts. And we're back with another episode of Unfuck My Business. And uh, today we're going to talk about pricing your shit because we get a lot of questions about this topic in our uh, weekly community calls. A lot of people, especially newer businesses, primarily just have no idea what they should be pricing for in the marketplace, or they find a little niche, they find a little platform, they get some money, they've started to do the thing, but they've realized they're not making enough money to be truly profitable, and they're not sure how to realign that. It's something that I dealt with a lot when my business was super small because I was originally only charging like between $25 to $45 an hour for web development services. And when I got to the point where I was starting to make a thousand bucks a week or so, it was like, great. But then I found I was working 80 to 100 hours a week as the business was growing. And I was sort of forced to if I wanted to keep making more revenue in my mind. But really, the answer there was that increased demand was a sign that I should be able to increase the price of my supply. We're going to dig into strategies for that today. And I've got with me uh, my showrunner and co-host, Robin Sales. Say hello. Hello. (laughs) And uh, Kathleen Seide, our community director and uh, realtor extraordinaire. Hello, hello. And our strategist and uh, the kind of person who can help you with your business strategy, Shay Jeffers. Greetings. Beautiful. Each of you, how do you set your pricing for your services by default? When you're putting your business together, what were the what was the thought process that went into place where you said, hey, this is what I can make per transaction, per hour, whatever your model is? I'll go ahead and start with Robin. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of awareness back at that time about doing comparative market analysis <laughs> and looking at competitors and things of that nature. So I just went with what I knew and... I will say that even though I now mix market analysis into the recipe, I still heavily rely on the basics that got me started. So number one, I have a sales training background and I love running the numbers, right? So what do I want to make? And then divide that by months and divide that by weeks. And what does that mean that I have to earn per week? And what does that mean I have to earn per hour? Boom, there's my hourly rate, right? That also helps inform how I delegate things to other people. Because if I'm worth, let's say, $250 an hour, you know, should I be spending my hours doing things like data entering on spreadsheets? (laughs) Or can I pay somebody else who can get it done a lot faster and I spend my time doing other things? So part of it is, what do I want to make? What does that calculate into in terms of an hourly rate? Right. And if I'm not at a place in the beginning, I wasn't at a place where I felt justified charging that hourly rate, but I knew that that's the hourly rate that I was chasing after. So what seems reasonable based on my skill and my newness to the market and what I'm actually doing versus the hourly rate that I'm working towards. So that was part of it. The other part of the equation for me is a lot of what I do is creating some sort of content 
So I'm helping people write messages. I might be writing strategy plans. When I'm not doing brand coaching, I do training projects where I'm writing sales content or I'm writing training or I'm helping people develop their courses. And there is a standard of practice for hours for that type of work. So in the training and development industry, it is widely held that it's a 40 to 1 ratio, which means for one hour of content, one hour of training, it takes 40 hours of work to develop that one hour of training. So I knew with most of the services that I would be providing, I did a lot of corporate workshops in the early days. So I knew I had a 40 to 1 ratio. So I needed to make sure that whatever the workshop was, if it's a three-hour workshop, those three hours plus the three 40-hour segments it's going to take to develop those three hours plus the travel and all of that gets factored into the rate that I charge that company for that workshop. I make sure people understand it's not just the hour of my time that I'm in front of your people. It's all the hours before and it's all the hours after that go into that rate. So having that ratio, that 40 to 1 ratio that I was able to bring with me from my corporate days really helped a lot in making sure I still undercharged myself in the beginning, (laughs) but that helped to make sure that I didn't undercharge myself too much. So between calculating an hourly rate based on what I wanted to earn and knowing the ratio of the amount of work it was going to take to produce the end result that the client wanted, those helped me figure out, okay, I can comfortably sandwich myself somewhere in there. (laughs) One of the things I, you know, I was just consulting with somebody recently who is brand new in the space, starting up a business. And I talked about the fact that a lot of times she was like, oh, the money I make on each of these transactions is really great. I'm like, well, how much time does it take for you to complete each of those transactions? She had no idea. And she's like, well, I think normally it's pretty quick, you know, maybe an hour or two. But she was doing uh, event booking and she supported last minute event booking, like entertainment services. And in a last minute booking kind of environment, she might be on the phone for three or four hours that afternoon looking for people with availability to fill, you know, event roles or whatever. And she hadn't really accounted for that. So I talked about the importance of measuring your work so that you know how much time you're actually spending to be able to calculate that. And you actually touched on that from two sides, from both the how much do you want to make side, right? And from the how much other work is going into completing whatever this particular transaction is. And that's that's an important thing to understand fully around. Kathleen, I know that, you know, obviously in real estate, you have commissions and such, and there's like sort of pricing structures that I, it's all kind of nebulous to non-realtors. We don't understand at all how much money you make on these transactions. I assume that you do, but how do you calculate what's a profitable transaction versus what's not a profitable transaction? And if it's not profitable, how do you adjust the pricing? So it's one of the interesting things about the real estate industry. It's very common to get paid on commission from the owner of the property that's selling it. So the owner of the property has an agreement with the listing agent and then the listing agent offers compensation to other agents bringing a client. And so it becomes the situation where as a listing agent, people are used to talking about commission and a percentage when they're negotiating. If you're talking about certain percentages, making a small change, a quarter of a point, half a point, 
it doesn't look like much and it, has, it makes these huge swings in how much money you bring in. So it's a very odd industry and an odd method for pricing because it doesn't give you a lot of control in a smaller way about things like that. And in this industry, once you're in a contract with somebody, you, you don't have the control over saying a deal is 30 hours or 60 hours or 100 hours. This is what I'm going to put into it. Like you, you don't, you don't know if you're going into something and it's going to be super easy and you only need to put 10 hours in, or if you're going to be just grinding it out because it's a nightmare lender. So the way that the pricing works and the income works for the business is you have to be able to average those out. And there's going to be some deals that are easy and there's going to be some deals that you are losing on your time, you know, your time value for, but that's kind of the way that the industry is. The other flip side of it is we're also pricing the properties that we're selling. So there's a lot of strategy. And I think people put a lot more strategy into that pricing process for listings than they ever do into the pricing process for their own services and for real estate services. I've tried to try out a few different pricing models People get confused and uneasy when you're trying to shake up the status quo, especially in something that's higher dollar like that. And so they'll tend to to lean away from it and go to something that they know. So having gone through some of that, I just went back to, okay, well, this is the kind of conversation everyone's having and I'm going to stick along those lines. So it sounds like there's something to be said for, you know, being very, very aware of, industry best practices and trying not to go into crazy non-traditional models um, because of the customer confusion that comes along with that. And I think that, uh, you know, when Robin referenced the sort of established industry best practices, that's one of those things where, you know, you can lean on that to justify your pricing. I know, like, for instance, in the car repair space, right, they've got book time. There's an expectation that it's going to take some amount of time and they'll charge book time whether or not it actually takes their mechanics that long to complete a repair or not, because that gives them a standard for pricing, but it also gives them a way to eke out some additional profit. If they can be more efficient in delivering the same product, you know, at a fixed price, but take less time to actually do it, then, then they make more money off the mix. Shay, what I find really interesting about your business is that you are, I dabble in a lot of things, but they're all generally in the same arena. You touch a lot of different things. You have a lot of different kinds of businesses, so to speak, between your core strategy and consulting business and, and music production and, you know, some of these other uh, like networking, you know, some of the other things that you do. How do you approach setting up pricing when you're opening up a new product line or revenue line? I like to start first. Is it a commodity type item or is it a custom unique item or service that you're providing that really can change how you price things dramatically? I like Robin's segment about talking first about what do you want to make? But then I want to add to that, how many customers can you serve with quality at a time? And a general number is about 10. That may be, depending on the, the length of service that you may have in terms of do you serve them weekly, monthly, quarterly, uh, or for six months, that may be between five to 10 customers per year or five to 10 customers per month. So you have to really take that, those things into consideration and that helps develop the pricing that you choose for certain things. So for instance, a wedding planner uh, that I know, uh, they price at five grand flat. That's the starting base price that they start with. Uh, and it goes up from there. But, but they know that they can only serve so many people at a time. And that five grand makes sure that they're covered and that they can then also provide the quality service. For me, in touching so many different 
variables in the market. It's really the fact that I'm not necessarily even selling myself. I'm selling my ability to coordinate and strategize and connect the dots. But what I'm selling is the capabilities of the world around me. So in terms of being able to delegate appropriately and price myself so that I can scale and bring in the right individuals so I can give you a lower level, a medium level, and a high level product. This is where we can start now getting into value-based pricing, which is where I like to be. And value-based pricing is really about discussing and exploring with the customer and finding out what is it that they're trying to accomplish in terms of the monetary value, the emotional value, the psychological value. And then you can scale your pricing on that and give them a scale like, hey, if you want to accomplish this much of your, of your desired outcome, then we can do this pricing. It's not going to get you the, the max level services, but we can actually get this within your budget. You have to discuss budget with your, your customers at first, upfront, early, so that you can then scale appropriately in my, in my world when it comes down to strategy and dealing with so many different variables. Yeah, I think that, you know, in, in, in web development, it's, there's like this weird sort of arc where when you're new in the space, you tend to do like flat fixed rate pricing, you know, maybe 500 to 1500 to 2500 or something, maybe five grand, who knows, but some fairly small amount. And then you find out that you're losing money because it's taking more time than you expected to actually do that. So you move into an hourly pricing model. And then over time, as you become more well-established, you still include an hourly consideration in your estimates, but it's generally just to get you to a new project total flat rate pricing again. But now you've learned a enough along the way that your project pricing is appropriate to the amount of work that you're actually doing. And I think like a lot of times when newer businesses are struggling with that, they don't understand how much experience plays into knowing that market and knowing what you can price for that work and all the rest of that. And you really touched on that important point of value-based pricing, you know, Robin. I want to hop on the idea of budget here for a second. When Shay said that, like my whole body was like, oh, I wish my biggest pet peeve in the world of sales. And let me preface this by saying, I love sales. <laughs> my favorite projects are to write sales training and develop sales processes for people, right? I love sales. But my biggest pet peeve in the world of sales is that we still, more times than not, feel like we have to tiptoe around the idea of budget and what people can and can't afford. And that also impacts how we price ourselves. I know we've all had the conversation where we've all had a client where we've had to tell that client, like, it's okay if you can't afford your own services, right? <laughs> that doesn't mean that other people can't afford your services at the price that you are currently valued at, right? But I just, I hate all of the bullshit posturing and negotiation, especially when you get to a certain level of sales. And so personally for me and, and anyone out there who's listening to this, who's ever done any project work with me or for me can attest to this. I hate having those conversations. I blow right past them. What is your rate? You tell me what it costs and I'll tell you how much I can afford, right? It costs what it costs. My budget is what my budget is. And so when I was on the other side of like corporate negotiations, when we're trying to bring in somebody and like, you can tell that that outside person, all they want to know is what's the number? What's the number that we have to hit for you to hire us? And I wish we could just say, here's the number, man. <laughs> like, just come in, tell me what you can give me at this number, because this is what I know I can pass through legal and through accounting and is, you know, fits within my budget, right? 
So I think if all of us could kind of let go of that, like your budget is what your budget is. And and there is a degree of like, you get what you pay for. A $500 website is going to look like a $500 website. But if that's all you can afford right now, make the most of that $500 website and then structure in a profit plan in your pricing to be able to afford the $5,000 website next time, right? Just tell people, this is what I can afford because it's going to save you and them a whole bunch of heartache in the long run. That's just such a huge pet peeve for me. I know a lot of people really hate, and I was one of them for a long time, being asked to ballpark cost. But that's what the client's asking when they're asking for that. They're saying, are you even in my range of affordability? And when I was younger and more inexperienced, you know, I would be like, listen, I really need to get into discovery with you to have some sense of what this is going to cost. But the benefit of having the experience of working with these kinds of things is that I can be like, hey, obviously we need to do full discovery to get a real accurate project timeline, but I think this project's going to be somewhere in the 25 to 35,000 range. That gives them a general wide enough number for them to know, are you even in range for me as a vendor? And still gives you plenty of room to move to adjust your pricing according to the actual amount of work that's being done. And the thing is, If you can get past the ballpark stage with them, that budget is not always that budget. Now that budget becomes, okay, we know that 35K is approved and I have a number of required things that I need out of this transaction, but there are some optional things in this transaction that I may go back to my board and beg for more money for if I think they're really, really critical. But if you can get past that ballpark stage, now you're actually in a place where you can have some of those deeper conversations and where maybe the budget is flexible, or maybe you get a phase two out of the deal. So there's an expectation of additional work coming on behind that. Kathleen, I think you had a point there. Yeah, it's kind of drifting from the service-based conversation into more product widget, that kind of a conversation with pricing. I also, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but I have a background in fine art. I went to college for sculpture. I have a fine arts bachelor's degree. And I am familiar in that space, not just with fine art, but also I've done a lot of renovations and construction work and usually for myself, but I've gotten involved in projects where I'm getting paid by other people to do finished carpentry and tiling and all kinds of stuff over the years. So the conversation around pricing for all of that stuff is very different, right? And a lot of times when you're at sort of the craft creating an item level, you start looking at what are my costs? Maybe you're considering the value of your time. Maybe you're not when you're early on pricing in that kind of an area. So a lot of people are looking going, oh, look, it cost me $5 in materials to make this thing. I'll sell it for 10 instead of like, but I put three hours of work into it and my hours are worth this much money or whatever. As you grow in those spaces, you start seeing that transition and looking at it, not just at what's my cost and not just at what kind of little bit of profit And then eventually it's not even just how much are my hours worth, but as you transcend through that spectrum to get to the point where you're talking about artisans and artists and creatives like that, it then becomes what are people willing to pay for it and what will the market bear, which is a very different way of looking at your pricing based on, you know, your own expertise, based on your own skill set, your own notoriety, you know, your fame, all of those things, people will pay for 
fine art that has nothing to do with the cost or the hours that you put in, right? So kind of knowing where you are along that scale and understanding how to start picking information about where to price shifts over time. Well, it's funny because, you know, we did our episode on knowing your numbers in season one. And one of the things that we talked about was COGS, right? Cost of goods sold. And generally those are raw production costs, but they are raw production costs. They certainly don't take into account all of the marketing or administration time or these other sort of hidden costs that you don't normally factor in when you're doing some raw numbers on, you know, what does it take? And and that's that math gets a little bit more complicated. And then as you grow, as, as you're referring to, you also have something uh, that is the brand premium. And maybe that's from experience. Maybe, uh, you know, if, if you're a 20-year developer versus a two-year developer, there's a brand premium for that, for the experience. If you're an Apple versus a TRS-80, you know, uh, there's hardware brand premium for that. There are a number of other premiums that can potentially become multipliers or add-ons to the total cost that, that help drive that up. But one of the things that you sort of touched on there, which is something that I'm always preaching, is constantly test the marketplace, constantly, constantly, constantly test to see what your price is. I know in our meeting last week, I think we just had one of our community members say that they were able to increase their pricing by 50%. I think they said it was from like 80 to 120 or something along that line. And they'd done nothing other than just quote it 50% higher than the last deal. Testing the market constantly is the way to go. If you feel like you're overloaded and overwhelmed and you've got too much work, you're not charging enough. I mean, that's that's the simple solution there. If there's enough of a demand, then you need to reprice the supply. And that's scary for people, you know? And, and I heard in my own business growth that, you know, some of my dearest long-term customers who we'd been partnered with for a while tell me after an announcement when I was raising my price again that I was pricing them out of the market. And I was like, I'm sorry, maybe y'all should raise your prices to account for my increase in prices. <laughs> you know, you have to be, if, if you're trying to, especially if you're in a growth period of your business, you should be constantly testing that market to see what the support is. And my general formula for that is about one of every three pitches, I'll try and go a little higher, you know, and just to see what happens. Um, and you have to be okay with some attrition for that because you're going to find some resistance. You're going to find some walls and some ceilings on, you know, what the market is currently supporting or especially on individual clients. I mean, don't give up on a price increase just because one client turned it down. Stick with that model for three or four sales cycles and see how it works out. If you don't close any of the increased price deals during that time, well, maybe the market's telling you you're not there yet but you should absolutely keep testing it along the way. Robin. In addition to listening to the market, listen to your customers. (laughs) So I have personal experience in this, but I've also been through this with some clients and some, some mentees that I've helped as well. Like sometimes they will tell you directly after two clients said to me, wow, I would have paid a lot more for this. Ding, ding, ding. I'm not charging enough. right? Oh, you would pay more for this? Great. It's going to cost you more next time, you know? (laughs) So number one, but also clients will tell you that you should be charging more without telling you that you should be charging more. They will say things like, wow, this is so much more than I was expecting. Wow. You've really over-delivered. Wow. You like... Any feedback that tells you that, I mean, obviously, if you're built like me, you always want to over deliver a little bit. But if the clients are telling you that, like, 
what they were expecting and what they actually felt like they received is way out of pocket, then you need to push your prices up higher, right? And capture that feedback from your clients so the next people understand the value that they're actually going to get from your product or from your services. So sometimes your clients will literally tell you that you should charge more. And sometimes they will give you feedback that is an indicator that you are not charging enough. I think that, you know, it's, you, you touched on something else really important there. Oftentimes, we don't think enough in terms of the total product life cycle. There's not just the experience of getting the product. There's the experience of talking to the vendor and having them discover what your needs are and this conversation that goes back and forth. There's the implementation or creation of the product. There's the delivery of the product. There's the post-delivery follow-up. There's a, you know additional conversations down the road. Service is a fundamental part of any business, whether it's a product or service-based business, because part of the equation, I mean, Apple, again, is another great example of this. The premium of their hardware is not really the explanation for their total cost. The explanation for their total cost is this perception of a relationship with a company with things like Apple Care and all the rest of that, where they feel like they're taken care of. The idea that the product itself has a long, slow depreciation cycle, that it maintains its value for some period of time. And that's just as applicable to web development as it is to buying a, a MacBook. They don't want a website that's going to be completely obsolete in a year. They need something that has a little staying power that's that's you know primed to grow for the future. So you have a very three-dimensional formula that's going into play with the value perception to that customer for whatever your product is. And it's uh, anybody who's ever read the book uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh, uh, Robert Persig talks a lot about uh, Phaedrus's uh, idea of quality. Quality is one of those things where we all know what quality is, except nobody can define it, really. Every time you start to, you find yourself stumbling. You're like, huh? And what it comes down to at the end of the day is just perception of value. That's 100% the driver of it. And perception of value is a, a multifaceted thing that has lots and lots and lots of different pieces to it. And when you're looking at your product and trying to price it accordingly, you really need to take into account all of those things that affect perception of value. If you're an extraordinary service provider that, like Robin said, people are always going, hey, I had such a great experience. This was way more than I expected. I would like to take that way off of that sentence and translate it into money right? I would like it to be, this is more than I expected. I'm perfectly comfortable with that. <laughs> and often the difference between way and just more is the amount that you're charging. I want everyone who is, uh, uh, who is doing business with me to feel like they got a great deal on their side, but not a very great deal. At that point, that means that I'm probably losing money. And because I love to give people examples, I want to circle back around to your idea here for a moment with an example that you gave us earlier. So the member that you talked about in our community call who was able to increase her prices by 50%, the reason she was able to increase her prices by 50% is because she now finally understands what her perceived value is. It's not the actual thing that she's delivering. It's the, the things beyond that. So she runs a tutoring service. So tutoring is tutoring, but what she does doesn't stop at tutoring. The way in which she tutors these children teaches them autonomy. It teaches them communication skills and alleviates a huge pressure off of the parents who put their kids through this program, right? So these kids aren't coming out with just better grades. They're coming out with a whole new way 
to run their own lives and communicate with their parents and their teachers and the folks around them. That's a huge shift in the perceived value. So if she was still pegging herself as just a tutor, she would be locked in at those lower rates. But understanding through looking at what her clients were telling her, what the real value was that she was delivering, that's what enables her to raise those prices and people will gladly pay it. And in six more months, I bet she can up them again and people will gladly pay it because she's finally identified this is the actual value that I'm delivering to the folks who are receiving it. And one of the final things that I want to go into is that this fear of you're going to lose your customers when you raise your prices. Anybody who's been listening to this podcast or joining our calls for some time has known that I am an evangelist for the uh, Gordon Ramsay show, Kitchen Nightmares, because you just see so many common business problems over and over and over again in these restaurants that are struggling. And one of them is they're scared to shift strategy or scared to increase pricing or whatever else because they're scared to lose the customers that they have, right? But the thing is, if your product has reached a place where it's appropriate to raise the prices, yeah, you may lose some of the existing customers that you have, but you're going to start getting into the newer customers that you want who are already willing to pay those prices. I mean, I know for me, it's kind of a, an inside joke that, you know, in the last four or five years, I've started getting personal massages and getting manicures and pedicures after being just like a wildly unpersonally maintained person for the vast majority of my life. You know, I did not have that sense of this is a service worth paying money for when I was, you know, trying to like struggle to get my business growing and all the rest of that. But then, you know, now that I have a little more financial flexibility, I'm like, I like getting my nails done. I really love a great massage, you know, and, and the idea of paying 175 bucks for an hour and a half of a great massage back when I was struggling was an impossible idea. But now I'm like, oh God, I can't wait to spend that 175 bucks for that great massage because I have a properly aligned value to cost formula associated with that. And it's within my budget. See how we tied all that back together? So yes, you may lose some customers along the way, but they're the customers that you graduate from. Not that there's anything wrong with them, not that they weren't good people or anything else, but you've just moved on. You've, you've gone to a new level. And I've had to have some sad conversations sometimes with customers that I'd supported for years who were like, but Chris, what are we going to do? You know, And I've offered them other vendors who were appropriate for their level of business. I try to make sure that those exits are as graceful as possible. But you have to be able to let go of some of that as you move on from level to level to level, you know? Shay? On that part about losing customers, some people worry about losing referrals as well. That is a big thing where you start to get bad referrals. That can really be a, a product of your pricing being incorrect because somebody believes that you're too much of a good deal. And then when they refer you to the next customer, that next customer expects even an even better deal or that same deal. So you got to be really careful about that pricing steep slope that you can crawl onto and then just slide down like an antlion. <laughs> it, becomes, it becomes a really terrible situation. So that's another little tidbit I wanted to toss in there. Rick. No question about it. Well, we're coming to the end of our segment here. Does anybody have any final thoughts or advice that they'd like to put in from a pricing perspective for those who are struggling with it? Yeah, I want you to keep in mind right time, right place, right audience. If you're having trouble getting people to pay, what you think you are worth, one of those three things is probably off. <laughs> you're pitching it to them at the wrong time, you're pitching it to them at the wrong place, or you're in front of the wrong audience. So right time, right place, right audience. 
And if you're starting to attract, like Shay said, you do one deal and then they start referring people to you that are at that deal level and suddenly your pricing scale is sliding down, wrong audience, man. You need to put yourself back in front of the right audience. Or you know this is the right audience, but nobody's buying. I've found myself in front of the right audience at the wrong time, right? I really fit for people who are at a specific part in their business life cycle. So if I'm in groups and on stages that are in front of people who are at that wrong stage of their business cycle, we're not helping each other here, <laughs> right? So I always like to remind people, right time, right place, right audience. And if, if your pricing isn't sticking or if you're not attracting what you're trying to attract, one of those three things is probably off. Beautiful. Kathleen? I think it's really important to understand what is going on in your industry. So you want to look at the high end and bracket yourself. What are they offering? How do you compare? The low, low end, what are they offering? How do you compare? And get a sense for where you fit in between all of that in the context of what your own costs are, your own business model, so that you're making the money that you need to make as a baseline. Absolutely. Shay? That's it. Uh, right now, just making sure that you are aiming your price at the point that serves you for growth. Um, you don't want to be a stagnant business with your pricing because it's very easy to, to get just stuck in a, a cycle that money depreciates over time. <laughs> and if you are at the same price today at the end of the year or you know two years from now, then you are behind the curve. So make sure that you're pricing for growth. Absolutely. And for my final thought, I want you to think about whether or not your product is popcorn or steak. With popcorn, you're trying to sell a lot of it. With steak, you're trying to sell the most expensive one. And which one of those two is appropriate for your business is entirely up to your business. Neither one is bad. There's no right way or wrong way to approach this, but it does mean a different kind of business strategy. If you're selling popcorn, it means that you need to be built around delivering a ton of your product quickly at a very low cost. And if you're selling steak, then it needs to be all about building that premium brand, that A7 Wagyu or whatever. I'm not a steak expert. I just made that up. So although it sounds delicious. And your business needs to fundamentally be built around that. When you're trying to offer both popcorn and steak in the same business, you're not going to be great at either one. So whatever your pricing model is, however you're approaching your revenue model, your business needs to be built around supporting that revenue model because it's going to fundamentally inform everything in relation to your pricing. So hopefully we've delivered some solid steak for you uh, today with uh, some pricing uh, models. If you're not in our community already, uh, make sure that you join up on uh, Facebook and uh, come out for our uh, regular weekly meetings. We can talk more about this and your business in particular. But from all of us here at the Unfuck My Business uh, crew, we will see you next Tuesday. What the fuck are you waiting for? Take what you learned in this episode and do something with it. You'll find all the links and resources we talked about in our show notes for this episode. And go to unfuckmybusiness.com to subscribe to the show. Mm -hmm.